It is my great joy to once again invite you to open up the word of the living God, the infallible record that we have before us this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15. Matthew, chapter 15. While you're turning there, as we endeavor to continue our verse-by-verse examination of this wonderful gospel, I'd like to prepare your hearts a bit to receive the word this morning, just to share a few things on my heart with you. On Wednesday nights, we are beginning to study Ephesians chapter 6 and the whole issue of the armor of God. And what we find there and in other texts is that the Bible is full of warnings concerning spiritual readiness, the, the importance of being prepared against satanic opposition, because the enemy is very deceptive. He is cunning. He disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, Ephesians 6 verse 11 says that we are to put on the full armor of God that you may, may be able to stand against or stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And Peter even reminds us in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 to be of sober spirit. Be on the alert, he says. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Well, the key to doing battle with the enemy, of course, is to be prepared, being on guard for the subtle temptations the subtle snares that he lays in our paths, those temptations that have been carefully prepared by a diabolical fiend and his minions to somehow trip us up and thwart the purposes of God in our life. And over the past few weeks, I've become burdened as your pastor that we as a church are ill prepared for such an attack. My concern for Calvary Bible Church is right now we are enjoying great spiritual blessings. We've got a group of people that are committed to sound doctrine. We've got over 75% of this church that are actively involved in various forms of ministry, which is a wonderful number. I could wish it would be 100%. Maybe someday it will. Most people have an appetite for the Word of God. Most people are morally pure. Most all of us are very comfortable in the facilities that God has given us. And now even the new building coming along, we enjoy sweet fellowship. Now we have the sermons in this church that are heard by close to a thousand people now every month around the world. In fact, we're at a stage now with this little church where we minister to more people outside the church on Sunday morning than we do those inside. So you say, Pastor, what's the problem? Well, friends, it's simply this. Wherever there is great spiritual blessing, there will be great satanic opposition. We must be sober. We must be vigilant. We must expect some kind of attack. And I believe that we as a church right now are vulnerable to a very unique form of attack. And I've seen this before. And we want to be kind of like the Homeland Security people here in the United States. We want to be vigilant. We want to anticipate where the next terrorist attack might come. 
Now, I know in the past we've been attacked through various kinds of difficult people. We've had heretics that flowed in and out of the church. And by the way, all of this is consistent with the New Testament. We are constantly warned that the greatest um, threat to every church will come from the inside, not from the out. But friends, I, I'm concerned about our vulnerability that has nothing to do with divisive people, nothing to do with some kind of heresy that might come in and attack the church. I'm concerned with something that I believe is far more subtle and far more devastating. Friends, I'm concerned that as a people, we will become spiritually complacent. To become content and satisfied and even perhaps smug. And as a result, we lose our love for Christ. You say, well, Pastor, not me. I, 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 I'm not that way. I, you know, how could you possibly think that? Ah, dear friends, be careful. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You know, Peter was the closest of all of our Lord's earthly companions. And he was shocked when the Lord questioned his love three times. Remember in John 21? Beloved, here was a man that was faithful in service. He was obedient. He was morally pure. He walked with the Savior, obviously had a high regard for Scripture. He was, shall we say, doctrinally sound, but he did not truly love the Lord at this stage of his life. You know, the enemy can convince us of our spirituality, and he very often does that with loud applause. Causing us to rest upon our laurels. Causing us to relax and kind of enjoy our success. And friends, imperceptibly, we become self-satisfied, we become apathetic, we can become smug and proud and lose our passionate love for the Savior. That's my concern. Like a stale marriage where two people who were once passionate lovers gradually become roommates. Very often with Christian people, this can happen. The thrill is gone. The zeal to serve is gone. The zeal to fellowship is gone. I remember the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. Here's what God warned them. He says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot endure evil men. And you put to test all who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. So he notices all those wonderful things. And I think all of those can be said about us. But he goes on to say, I have this against you. That you have left your first love. You know, they were convinced they had a thriving ministry and by every outward appearance, appearance they did. They were noble, hardworking servants. They, like us, were doctrinally sound. They wouldn't tolerate error. They wouldn't tolerate heretics within the church. They patiently endured hardship, yet they lost their first love. And friends, this is my concern for the church here. I believe Satan would have us believe that we have arrived spiritually. 
And certainly this appeals to our flesh because our flesh is hopelessly biased in our favor, right? And it's been my experience that the louder the applause, the greater the vulnerability to complacency. And we have had much applause here at this church. Many have said that we are a faithful, powerful, dynamic church. And we've been described as an oasis in a desert of apostasy. We have people that listen to what's happening here in various countries around the world and use it for their church services. And all of those things are wonderful. We rejoice in those things. But my concern is that therein lies the danger. We can begin to relax and no longer be suspect of our own spirituality. And spiritual success can breed pride and self-righteousness. And we can grow cold and we can grow sterile and apathetic and lose our zeal for Christ. Of course, the first to go is a secret devotion to Christ, where we where we we cease to have a prayer closet, where we cease to have a vital and thriving life behind the scenes, where we enjoy being with the Lord. And no longer do we really enjoy being in his presence, but all we're busy at church. God told those people at Ephesus, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. In other words, folks, go back to when you first came to understand who Christ was and who he is. Folks, do you remember the thrill that you experienced? I hope you do. I do. When you first understood who the Savior was and that your sins were forgiven. You remember that? You remember when your heart was once ablaze for Christ and you would have given all that you had to the poor if the Lord had asked. Nothing was more important than knowing him and serving him. You remember when you first came forth from the pool of baptism and, 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 and tears of joy ran down your cheeks as you were raised to walk in newness of life. You remember those days? You remember when nothing could separate you from the word of God? You remember when, when truth, when you heard it? It brought welcomed conviction to your soul. And every precept in the word of God was sweeter than honey. Remember when his promises resonated in your ears like the lines of a love letter. When you lived to hear his voice through his word and nothing could keep you from running into his presence in prayer. Remember those days when every time the church doors were open, you, you, you would run through them with earnest. And the highlight of every week was to come together with brothers and sisters in Christ and pour out your praise and your petitions to the Lord. What's happened to some of those days for some of you? You remember when your voice longed to sing the songs of redemption and how sad it is now to look around at times when we see people that aren't singing. Remember when you made a nuisance of yourself sharing the gospel with every stranger because you were so thrilled with what had happened in your soul. Do you remember those days when love blazed forth like an unquenchable flame of passion? When you burned hot for Jesus. You remember those days? And I know for some of you it still does, but perhaps for others it doesn't. Remember when you would set the world aglow with 
your zeal for his glory. When nothing else in life mattered than loving the Savior. But now the fire is out for some. All you can do is kind of make yourself come to church occasionally. You can really care nothing about singing the hymns because there's really no song in your heart that is longing for expression. None of that's really there. Your Bibles collect dust during the week. All your money, all your time is spent on yourself. But oh, you go to a great church. You see how it works? Most people who know you perhaps would say, you know, I hardly ever hear them talking about the lover of their soul. Oh, but they're quick to point out some error in doctrine or to attack some heretic. Friends, this is spiritual defection. And this is the burden of my heart for all of us. When our service in the church becomes obligation. When our worship is nothing more than tradition and ritual, kind of what you do on Sundays in the South. When you no longer have time to pray, when there's no secret devotion to God, there's no appetite to feed on the word of God. And your mind wanders to the ends of the earth during the sermon. When you never share the gospel with some lost soul because the fire's gone. Husbands, remember those days when you would walk with your wives and you couldn't wait to share with them some wonderful truth that God had revealed to you that week? When you couldn't wait to kneel with her and to pray with her and to hold her hand and to lead her as a godly man? Wives, you remember those days when you enjoyed the confidence of your husband because you knew you could trust him because he was often found in his closet of prayer. And because he often revealed to you the strength of a man who was walking with God. You remember those days? Mothers, you remember those days when you were consumed with a passion to, to know more of Christ so you could teach your children. And your knees were calloused for prayer from prayer because you spent so much time on them praying for your children. Men, you remember those days when you would spend hours preparing for your Sunday school lesson and you would never miss a spiritual opportunity to somehow lead your family and worship. Women, remember those days, perhaps, when you were ever vigilant to disciple a younger woman? Remember when nothing could prevent you from choir rehearsal? Those of you that would be a part of that. You remember those days when nothing could stop you from coming and sharing with others in prayer? When nothing would stop you from serving behind the scenes? Friends, those were the glory days for many people. The glory days of their faith. But for many, that's just a memory that's gone. And for many, you will justify that by saying, well, you know, Pastor, come on, I, I, I'm older now. I, I've done my part. Let the young ones do theirs. Things are different now. I, I've got so many other priorities in my life. I, I, I've got my, my family. I've got my business. I've got all of these things. I'm just too busy for this stuff now. Friends, if that describes you, if any of this describes you, you've lost your first love. 
And as water erodes over a rock in a stream, so too complacency will gradually and imperceptibly erode away at our faith and diminish our zeal and our love for for Christ. And friends, I challenge you as we look at this text for a few minutes this morning, I challenge you even this evening to find a quiet time and to stand before the bar of your own conscience. I challenge you to plead your best case. I challenge you to do all that you can to justify your attitude for Christ and your service for Christ. I challenge you to do everything you can to exonerate yourself, even before your own conscience. And you just might discover that the verdict that you will hear loud and clear is that you have lost your first love. And friends, if that's the case, all the rest of this is a sham. So I pray that all of us will examine our hearts even this morning as we have, once again, an inconceivable privilege of hearing the Lord speak to us through His Word. And I pray that God will convict us all of complacency, that we will all, once again, be suspect of our spirituality, that we will grieve over a love that is lost, that we will mourn over bygone devotion and superficial worship and deflated zeal. So that the Lord can once again fan the embers of love within our hearts, that love that has grown cold. And as we examine the life and love of Jesus here this morning, perhaps our hearts will once again be reignited and burn hot with love for the lover of our souls. This morning, I've entitled my sermon, No One Cares Like Jesus. And we see this. In this glorious text that we have before us in Matthew chapter 15, beginning with verse 29. Follow along as I read. And departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee and having some and having gone up to the mountain, he was sitting there. And great multitudes came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, dumb and many others. And they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them, so that the multitude marveled as they saw the dumb speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the multitude, because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not wish to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where would we get so many loaves in a desolate place to satisfy such a great multitude? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. And he directed the multitude to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and the fish and giving thanks, he broke them and started giving them to the disciples and the disciples in turn to the multitudes. And they all ate and were satisfied and they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, seven large baskets full. And those who ate were four thousand men besides women and children. And sending away the multitudes, he got into the boat 
and came to the region of Magadan. Let me give you the context. Jesus now goes to the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee in the region of what was called Decapolis, which means in Greek, ten cities. These would be ten city-states that were kind of gathered together. By the way, this would be right south of the Golan Heights, as you look at the map today. I've been there, so have some of you. It was a distinctly Gentile region. I have seen some of the archaeological finds in that area, massive amphitheaters. They have numerous uh, statues honoring the pagan deities, including um, Artemis and Aphrodite and Zeus and Hercules, Dionysus, uh, Athene, Demeter, so on. So Jesus now comes to this place with the disciples and he ascends up onto a mountainous area away from the populated areas. But immediately we see in this gospel and the others that the multitudes recognize him and they begin to gather. You see, again, wherever Jesus went, anywhere in that region, people knew who he was. He was absolutely the talk of everyone because of what he was doing with his miracles. So the multitudes come, great multitudes, the text says, come to him. And in verse 30, it says they bring those who were lame, crippled, blind, dumb and many others. And they laid them down at his feet and he healed them. Now, folks, imagine the scene. These pagan people coming by the thousands up to this mountain where Jesus was, bringing with them their loved ones and their friends that were in need of healing. The term crippled that we see here in the text is one that describes people who have body parts that are deformed or body parts that are that are mutilated or useless or even non-existent. Folks with no arms, folks with no feet, no hands, no legs, no eyes, no ears. And the text says that they bring them and they laid them at his feet. And interestingly enough, in, in the original language, the idea of laying them at his feet has the idea of, 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 of hurriedly and, and kind of a desperate way, but yet carefully putting people in front of him. You see, these people were desperate. They were frantically seeking the Savior for physical healing. And the text says that there were about 4,000 men, not including the women and children, which you add the women and children. It was like when we were studying the, 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 the feeding of the 5,000 in a Jewish area. Um, here we have 4,000 in a Gentile area. And it would have been about 20,000 people, roughly. If that gives you any idea how many people. That's a lot of people. And again, imagine the scene. There, there were those who were suddenly healed. That, that, that hadn't been able to walk because they had no legs or, or, or they couldn't speak or they couldn't see. And now these people are rejoicing while at the same time others are weeping and pushing their way, trying to get their loved one or trying to drag themselves before the Savior. I mean, th- this is just an incredible scene. They all wanted to experience the same thing. And here we have the compassionate, loving Savior healing these people. And we know as well that he taught them. He gave them the gospel, the truth of who he was, the truth of their sinfulness, the truth of sins forgiven through Christ. And the rest of the people were standing around, the text says, in utter dismay. 
They were absolutely flabbergasted. Verse 31, the multitude marveled, it says. It means they were, they were awestruck. They, they, they were speechless. They were, they were overwhelmed. Wouldn't you be if you were witnessing all of this? Of course you would. They saw the dumb speaking, it says, the crippled restored and the saint and the lame walking and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Isn't it interesting? They didn't attribute his supernatural acts to Satan like the Jews did, but rather gave God, the God of Israel, all the glory. Now, folks, I want you to I want you to let this sink in. Beloved, this is the this is the Jesus that has saved you and me. This is the Jesus that we love. This is the one who saw all of this and said to his disciples in verse 32, I feel compassion for the multitude. The word compassion in the original language is a term that, that literally means the churning of one's viscera, the, 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 the seat of the emotions, as they, they believed. It means to be agitated in one's bowels or, or moved in one's inward parts. We would say it was just ripping his guts out. It was tearing his heart out. That's how we might put it in our vernacular. And again, here he is. He's, he's sitting on the mountain and thousands of people who have been ravaged both spiritually and physically because of the effects of sin. The compassionate Savior sees this and he reaches out to them in compassion because his whole inward parts are being torn apart. He knows what they could have in glory if sin had not come into play. He knows what they could have someday if they would repent. And yet he sees the ravages of sin and he knows what awaits them lest they repent. A fate far worse than what they're experiencing. And because of his great love, he heals them. Notice the text says even that, that he fed them. He, he knew that they were faint. Verse 32. The word faint indicates that, that these people were were ready to collapse they hadn't eaten in three days. Three days. They were running on adrenaline. Mark's gospel tells us, too, that the Lord looked at them and, and, and saw them as sheep without a shepherd. These people are wandering around in, in, in the blackness of pagan idolatry. People that are dead in their sins. They're suffering physically. And again, that's nothing to compare with the eternal wrath that awaited them, lest they repent. So here again, we see the intimate compassion of Jesus concerned with their physical needs as well as their spiritual needs. And beloved, this is really a foretaste of the kingdom to come. I want to digress for a moment. You need to understand this. You see, Jesus now is reaching out beyond the covenant people and he's bringing deliverance to the Gentiles. In fact, every aspect of Jesus' earthly ministry was a preview of a kingdom blessing to come. For example, Jesus spoke much of an eschatological kingdom uh, that, that, that he would establish when he comes again someday in power and great glory. And we're looking for that day to come. And, and all of that was previewed in his transfiguration when he peeled back his flesh and glorified himself. In Matthew 19, 28 we read of the palingenesia, the regeneration. The, um, it means the, the, uh, the, the new world, this, uh, the renovated world that will come. The rebirth or transformation of the material order. When the Lord comes again the second time and establishes his millennial kingdom. And certainly his miraculous 
healings and the creation of food when he feeds the people is all a preview of a kingdom age to come. The multitudes there were a preview of this new world in the millennial kingdom. By the way, Jesus went on in Matthew 19, verse 28, to speak of this regeneration. When the Son of Man, it says, the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. And then he says, you, referring to the twelve apostles, also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Folks, even the Lord choosing the twelve apostles prefigured, now catch this, the reestablishment of the twelve tribes of Israel in the millennial kingdom. And the fact that someday the twelve apostles will rule over them. So when you look at Jesus' earthly ministry, you see all of that he all that he is doing is a preview of coming attractions, if you will, of a kingdom age to come. And we know that after a thousand years in that millennial kingdom, all of that will be wiped away. The renovated earth will now become a recreated earth, a new heaven and a new earth. The Bible talks about. And the earthly millennial kingdom then will give way to this heavenly eternal kingdom. That will be a time when the curse is utterly eradicated. And according to Revelation 22 and verse 2, there will be a tree of life in heaven, which is a glorious symbol of, of eternal blessing. And that text says, and the leaves of the tree were the healing of the nations. So obviously, as we look back upon our Lord's ministry we see his miraculous healings being a foreshadowing of this glorious consummation of redemptive history. Even all of the Lord Jesus's teachings would have been in his earthly ministry would have been a preview of what's going to happen even in the millennial kingdom. When, according to uh, what Paul said in Romans eleven twenty six, all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall, shall turn away the ungodliness from Jacob. And even Habakkuk reminds us of this in chapter 2 and verse 14 of that age to come. He says, for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Won't that be something when someday everyone will understand the glory of of God, They will understand the person and the work of Jesus. No more ignorance. No more theological falsehoods that people get sucked up into. And Zechariah prophesies as well in chapter 14, verse 9. In that day, he says, the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day shall there be one Lord and his name one. So again, all of the things that we see Jesus doing, the lover of our souls, all that he's doing in his earthly ministry, whether it's healing or teaching or preaching, all of this is a preview of coming attractions in the kingdom age. His entire earthly ministry was a sample, a kingdom blessing. And folks, that's what awaits all of us. So back to the text. People are coming now with mutilated limbs, limbs that weren't even there. They're being restored. Limbs that didn't exist suddenly appear. The deaf can suddenly hear. The blind can see. The lame can walk. And beloved, I come back to you. This is our Jesus. This is the one we love. This is the one we serve. Don't let your love grow cold for him. As I was meditating on this text, that great hymn came to my mind. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. The chorus goes on to say, there's no other friend so kind as he. 
No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cared for me. Now, notice again in verse 32, Jesus calls his disciples to him and he says, I feel compassion for the multitude. They've, they've been with me now here for three days, nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry. I'm afraid they're going to faint. And in verse 33, disciples said to him, where would we get so many loaves in a desolate place to satisfy such a great multitude? Now, we can stop here and we can say, my, don't tell me that these guys have forgotten what's happened just a few weeks earlier. When they asked the same question and the Lord rebuked them and, 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 and fed the 5,000. No, I don't believe that's the case at all. I don't think there's any way that they would have forgotten that. So why the question? Well, I think the question when, the, when he says, uh, when, you know, when they say to him, where could we get so many loaves and so on? I believe that was a question that was put to the Lord to literally acknowledge their lack of resources. Lord, we, we, we don't have it. Lord, obviously, we do not have the wherewithal to feed this vast crowd. Only you can do this. I believe they're acknowledging this. And the Lord Jesus then says, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. Then he asked them to sit down. He's going to expedite now the dispersion of the food with so many people. And I believe he also wanted everyone to be able to see what was going to happen. And notice there was also seven large baskets. Again, remember that seven is the biblical number of, of perfection and completion. And it's interesting here, by the way, that unlike the Jews, when he was with them with the feeding of the 5,000, they also had baskets. You remember that? But the Greek term for baskets with the Jews is different than the one that is used here with the Gentiles. The Jewish term was one that referred to something that was just a small basket that would hold two lunches. You don't see this in the English, you do in the Greek. But but here we see that the term is something different. It's referring to a basket that's big enough that you can put a man into. In fact, this is the same type of basket that they used to lower Paul down over the uh, the wall in Damascus. You remember that in, in Acts 9. And certainly they're going to need a big basket here with all these people because these people have been without food for three days. So they are hungry. And in verse 36, after he gives thanks, it says he started giving. By the way, that can also be translated. He kept giving. He just kept on giving. It, 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 it just keeps appearing. Now, friends, can you imagine the utter astonishment here? The, the disciples kept on distributing hundreds of baskets of food to these hungry and awestruck Gentiles. And I would say by now they're all healed. They're sitting there looking at their new hands and their new arms and they're looking out of eyes that have never been able to see before. And they're seeing these men bringing food to them coming from Jesus, the Messiah. Beloved, again, this is the Jesus we love. This is the Jesus that loves us. How sad to think that our love can grow cold for such a savior and such a friend that has such compassion. And there's five Significant truths I want to share with you that, that, that flow out of this. Just very briefly, five lessons that we learn from this incredible event in the life and the times of Jesus. First, we learn about the scope of divine compassion. Notice that he ministers to men, women, children, people that are pagan, idol worshiping Gentiles, not just the Jews. People that are diseased and, and crippled, without limbs, blind, deaf, disfigured, even people that are hungry. 
You see, he not only saw the physical and spiritual needs of all of the people, but he ministered to those needs without exception. And he met all of them. In fact, in every scenario, we, when Jesus is with the people, we see that he ministers to their physical need as well as to their spiritual need. And what an example this is to us to minister to physical needs. I, I, I gave you one this morning. We've got some brothers in Christ whose families are starving. And there's many other needs. And I know we can't meet them all. But wherever we can, we're to meet those needs. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, I'm going to pray for you like we often do. But he rolls up his sleeves and he does something. He gets involved. So easy. It's so easy for us to say, well, I, yeah, I'm just going to pray for those people rather than sacrificing and writing a check or writing a card or making a phone call or making a meal or lending a hand. You see, friends, divine compassion is not abstraction. It is action. Genuine Christ-like love is always sacrificial. It is always giving. And it is never selective. It never discriminates. It's extended to all. By the way, especially to fellow believers. Especially to fellow believers. Paul makes that clear in Galatians 6, verse 10. He says, do good to all men. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. But the second lesson we learn is that we are taught in purity. So you need to confess your sins. And for the rest of you, for some others, perhaps you need to get back in the battle. You, you know, you, you need to get back involved. You need to reenlist. You're never going to enjoy doing battle against the enemy and enjoying walking closely in warfare with the Savior unless you're in the battle. And for many of us, we need to reprioritize our life. I mean, this whole society, and Satan has orchestrated it this way. This whole society is designed to keep you from doing precisely what I'm pleading with you to do. You need to discover and develop your gifts in the church. That's God's way. You need to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. Now, permit me to summarize my thoughts poetically as we close, as we prepare to partake of communion here this morning. Amidst our labor, songs and prayers, a danger lurks oft unaware. Hidden beneath our doctrinal truths, a perilous threat can slowly ensue. Disguised by our fervent and moral stands, where service and faith walk hand in hand, a cold, calloused wind of defection can blow. Slowly, but surely, silent as snow. Where once we burned hot with zeal from above, suddenly we see that we've lost our first love. What once was our passion, our joy, and our song is now but a memory of love that is gone. Once we recall, tears of joy filled our eyes, our hearts overflowed, and with rapture did sigh, Oh, Jesus, my Savior, what joy floods my soul. My sins are forgiven. You've now made me whole. But oh, how short our memories can grow, forgetting how much to our Savior we owe. Like Peter, we're shocked when the Lord doth inquire, Do you love me, my child? Where now is your fire? We all would do well to examine our heart 
Ask if love burns as it did in the start. For complacency's child is stillborn and cold. Like marriage worn out, discarded and old. Then remember from where thou hast fallen and cry. Oh, Lord, please forgive me, my wandering eye that drifted away from love's precious gaze and focused instead on vainglorious praise. With joy, once again, my love I renew, knowing full well it longs only for you, forgetting my laurels and spiritual pride. In thee, oh, dear Jesus, my love will abide. Father, we pray pray this morning that these truths will resonate in all of our hearts and that our love will burn hot for you so that it would never be said of you that we have lost our first love. For, Lord, indeed, we love you with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul. And yet, Lord, somehow, because of our own flesh and because of this wicked world in which we live, all of that can be dampened. And our love can begin to grow cold. Lord, forgive us. And may we burn so hot for you that the whole world will see the blaze of your glory through our lives. And Lord, for that person that really does not know anything of which I speak, Lord, how I pray that they will be so overwhelmed with conviction that they will run to the Savior, even as those people did in that first century. They will experience the compassion of the Lord Jesus because he is willing to forgive those who cry out to him for salvation, for forgiveness. Lord, we commit them to you. Save them, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.